Well, over the weekend, I hit a milestone of sorts. It's probably not one that you've ever thought about. And for some of you, this might not be that big of a deal, but it was a little bit significant for me, is that on Friday, I hit the longest I've ever lived in one place my entire life. Right here. You people. I've spent more time with you people than I have spent with anyone else ever. <laughs> uh, it was kind of, it was kind of a, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I wouldn't call it a big emotional moment, but just kind of like a wow. Like, you know, for me, my story is that I moved around a lot as a kid. My parents, uh, my dad was a pastor, and not only that, he was a, he was a, a, a replant pastor. He would go and replant uh, churches. He was a revitalizer. He'd go into situations that were dead or dying and bring it back to life. And so I watched my parents over the years plant and revitalize all sorts of things. In fact, when I was in seventh grade, my dad was revitalizing a church in this area, and we met across the street in the chapel at Gateway Longview. So seventh grade, seventh grade Brian, while some of you were even there at that time, while you were here, 12-year-old Brian was flipping overhead projector sheets across the street. For one year, I was right over there flipping things for my dad as he was revitalizing that church as they were planting out of Gateway Longview's chapel. Now, they said yes to Jesus over and over. I got to watch my parents say yes to Jesus over and over again, often at their own financial cost. There were times when in our family where things were tight. And you just know it as a kid. It's not that my parents would openly talk about it, but you can just kind of tell when you're a kid that things are a little tighter right now. Christmases didn't always look like my friends. But my mom would always say something. She'd always have this phrase, and she'd say it over and over again. You know those phrases your mother would say, and you just, they burrow into your brain, right? She would say this. She'd say, you can't outgive God. Does anyone remember that phrase growing up? You can't outgive God. Now, for you students in the room, you might remember that you might remember your mom might have these things that, they, that she says to you, you know, I love you, or brush your teeth, or get your note, pick your finger out of your nose. Like, they say these things a lot, but this was one that my mom would say that I'd never forget, that you can't outgive God. Now, what she didn't mean by that, she didn't mean this health and wealth, sow a seed so you can reap a financial gain lie. That's not what she meant by that. What she meant was is that when you say yes to Jesus, everything you need will be given to you as well. Everything you need for the task that God is calling you to, he will provide in those, in those times. Now, we've been jumping around a little bit here in this Sermon on the Mount. We've been going kind of here and there, uh, but we're coming towards the end. We've got two passages left. Next week, I'll kind of close us out with the, with the ending of this uh, little sermon in chapter 7. But today, we are going to look here in Matthew 6, starting in verse 19. So if you have a Bible, you want to reference that, you can take a look there in Matthew 6, verse, starting in verse 19. Now, of course, it starts with, when we just read it, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and vermin destroy, and thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself, he said, treasures in heaven, where moth don't come, vermin don't come, where thieves don't break in and steal. It's almost like this like, investment type of mindset. Why would you put an investment in a deteriorating asset? 
That doesn't make any sense. You, you, put, you put your stock, you put your, uh, your resources, your investment in things that will last, that have a, an eternal purpose. But what's interesting is this very first little uh, phrase. Jesus says, do not store up for yourself. But actually, in the original language, probably a better rendering is stop storing up for yourself. And the reason is, is that do not, at the beginning, is an imperative. It's a command. It's not a, it's not a request. And it's, a, it's in the present. And almost always, 99 times out of 100, when you have this kind of this uh, present imperative, it assumes that the person is already doing it and that they need to cease from doing it. And so it's a little nice when you say, do not store up for yourselves. But I think kind of more literally, it's stop it. Stop doing it. Which is interesting because the passage assumes you're doing it. Right? The passage doesn't assume that you're a neutral bystander listening and deciding which way you're going to go. No, Jesus assumes you're doing it. Stop it. Stop doing it. Now, this might seem subtle. This might seem like just a, but I actually think there's, there's some importance to this. Jesus doesn't approach the topic as if we are neutral. He starts with the supposition that we're sinful. He starts with the idea that we are going to do it because we are damaged and sinful and scarred. And so our natural tendency when we receive something is to hoard and to keep nice and close to the chest. He starts with the idea, he assumes that we are oriented towards a greedy, self-preservation, scarcity mentality. So you are going to store up for yourselves treasures on earth, and it is only when you see God it's only when you see his generosity, it's only when you see his grace that you can begin to stop. You're not going to stop until you see it. We'll get to that idea in a moment. So he says, stop it. He assumes you're doing it. And now how do we work towards stop doing it? And so what Jesus uses to help us see it is he uses another one of these Jewish idioms. We've talked about this before in this series. An idiom, every language has idioms. These are figures of speech that don't make sense literally, but communicate a bigger truth. We have them in English. I've used this one before. When we say it's raining cats and dogs, we don't mean that pets are falling from the sky. Right? We mean that it's raining really heavily. That's an idiom we use that doesn't make sense literally, but communicates a bigger truth. There are all sorts of these in this little sermon. All sorts of them. We talked about abolish and fulfill, and there's a whole bunch of them. We see one right here. This is how Jesus describes it. He says, do you have a good eye? Now again, he doesn't mean literally can you... Do you have good eyesight? Anyone who's glasses, you don't have good eyes, right? Like, that's the idea. He doesn't mean it literally. He says and asks, do you have a good or do you have a bad eye? Now, the phrase good eye or bad eye was a way people described a person's outlook both to God 
and then, secondarily, how they then saw other people. It was all about seeing, being able to see well, and it's not literally seeing well, it's do you have a good understanding? Do you see God well? Do you know the heart and character and the person of God? Can you see him or can you not? And that's all wrapped up in this little idiom, do you have a good eye? If you believe deep down that God himself is stingy, that he's unwilling or unable to care for you, then you don't see things the way they really are. You have a bad view of God, and so you have a bad eye. If, on the other hand, you are radically convinced of God's provisional presence in your life, you're confident that God will give you everything you need to do the work he has called you to do, if you have a rock-solid definition of what is enough, it will allow you, you will have a good eye, you will see God well, which will then enable you to then emulate that towards others. So you always knew if you had a good eye or a bad eye based on your generosity to others, because if you believe and see God one way, you will emulate that way to other people. If you saw God in the correct way, if you had a good eye, you saw his caring, grace, provision, love, abundance, fatherly heart, then that would emulate and then you would have a good eye towards those around you. Because the Hebrew understanding of seeing was the ability then to see the needs of others. So someone who had a bad eye was someone who was stingy, someone who played it close to the vest, someone who was not generous with their things. And somebody who had a good eye then was generous. This is why when you have a bad eye, you live in darkness. You literally can't see. If you have a bad eye, you live in the darkness. You're not, a, you're not able, God is, God is clouded to you. you and you, you can't see the needs of the people around you because of this bad eye. Now, if you don't believe me, there are actually other places in the scriptures where this very phrase is used to mean this. Flip on over to Proverbs. Proverbs 22 uses this uh, this uh, specifically. Now again, there's a little bit of translation here. Uh, what happens a lot of times is translators will smooth out the transition because we don't understand the idioms, right? If somebody today wrote a book and they said in that book it was raining cats and dogs, and then that book was buried, and then 2,000 years later somebody found the book and tried to translate it into a new language, they would likely not literally translate it raining cats and dogs, because that reader wouldn't have understood what that meant. They would probably have smoothed out the translation to say, it rained really hard. But that translator would have understand the heart of the idiom and then been able to translate it well. That's what happens a lot of times in our Bibles. The translators will smooth that out because we don't literally get these idioms that are written in those days thousands of years ago. We see an example here in Proverbs 22. In Proverbs 22, verse 9, it says, The generous will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. But literally in the Hebrew, it reads, The one with the good eye will themselves be blessed, for they share their food with the poor. And then, conversely, the next proverb in Proverbs 28. Proverbs 28, 
The stingy, we'll say in a lot of translations, but literally in the Hebrew, the bad eye, the one with the bad eye, are eager to get rich and are unaware that poverty awaits them. Good eye and bad eye. So the question is, do you see God? Do you see him? Do you understand him? Do you get his heart? Do you have a good eye? Because if you do, it will naturally emulate how you treat your neighbor. You now have a good eye to see the need of your neighbor. The one with the good eye is the one who is generous because he sees God. And he sees the generosity that God has bestowed upon him, which then can't help but then ooze out into generosity to others. Or do you have a bad eye? Do you not get God? Is there some, is there some uh, wall or, or, or barrier and, and you just can't get over? You just, God just doesn't seem like I can totally trust everything he promises us in his word. And so th- that naturally is going to come and, and root itself in our heart, which naturally is going to then uh, emulate out into, I, don't, I just don't know if I can, I can give. What, what, if, what if there isn't enough? What if there isn't enough? What if God's grace isn't enough? What if he'll only forgive this many times? I only have this many forgiveness cards to play. What if, what if he just goes tired of me over and over? Again? What, what if there's a limit? Well, I, I just, yeah, I, I don't know if I can, I can give out to. Do you have a good eye or a bad eye? Now, my dad, I've been talking about my father. When I was a kid, my father, in a moment of parental genius, decided that he was going to teach me about giving to God. He was going to try to help me have a good eye. He didn't say it that way, but that's what he was trying to do. He wanted to, uh, you know, start to raise up a boy that was going to have a good eye. So what he decided to do is this. He said, all right, every Sunday, Brian, I'm going to give you a dollar bill. You're going to sit And when the plate comes along, you're going to give the dollar bill away. You had it. It's in your possession. You didn't earn it. I literally gave it to you. And you are then going to give it away. So this first little, you know, the first little uh, test of, of like, can I, you know, can I give it away? And I'll tell you for a while, I did pretty well with this. I want you to know. For a little bit. I was putting it in faithfully, bam, I wasn't even thinking about it. And then one day it, re- it dawned on me, my dad is up on stage. He's not seeing what's going on. And I do one of these numbers. Right? Week after week, I began to do this. Now again, when you're seven, what are you spending money on, right? Like candy bar, like there's no, so I would just stuff these dollar bills under my mattress. It was my bank. I don't know what to do. What, do we, you know, what does a seven-year-old do with dollar bills? I don't know. So literally every Sunday I'd sneak home and I'd stuff a dollar bill under my mattress week after week after week until one day when my mom was cleaning my sheets, 
you know, started to pull the, 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 the sheets off and saw something sticking out of my sticking out of my mattress and pulled it up and there was like $40 worth of $1 bills all crammed up under the mattress. Needless to say, my father was not happy at all. I had a bad eye. I had a bad eye. I didn't understand the grace that was given to me. I didn't earn any of those dollars and was asked in the same generosity that this has been given to you, can you now, in the same generosity, give it away? And I couldn't. Because Jesus assumes you're going to do it. So stop it. I had a bad eye. Stuffing dollar bills under my mattress. But for those of us who develop slowly, and it's a process, for those who have a good eye, they know the idea. You can't outgive God. You can't outgive God. Now, the next section of this passage, it begins talking about anxiety, which is perfect. That's, that makes all the sense of the world. It starts with the word therefore, which means you have to look back and say what, we're, what this passage is talking about is in direct connection with what was just said. So Jesus says all this stuff. Don't store up for yourself treasures in heaven. Store, or store up yourself treasures in heaven. Don't store up treasures on earth. You know, your heart, where is your heart? You can't serve God in money. And it says, therefore, don't be anxious. I've seen this passage used often just to talk about anxiety in general. Like, oh, we'll go to Matthew 6 to talk about when you're anxious. But really, this passage is talking specifically about provision. About us, if we have a good eye or not, are we being generous? If you are, if you have a good eye, then don't worry. Don't worry. The context assumes your anxiety is coming out of your generosity. Let me say that again. The passage assumes your anxiety comes out of your generosity. That you won't store up for yourself treasure on earth. That you won't try to serve two masters. That you won't have a bad eye. And then Jesus puts his arm around you in the midst of your generosity and says, Brother, sister, don't worry. Don't worry. I know it, it, it hurt. Oh, given when you feel like there's this, is there going to be enough? Like, and Jesus puts his arm around you and says, in the, in the midst of that, don't worry. And Jesus uses these examples, which I don't think are, are, are accidental, and I don't think they're random. He uses these three examples. He says, don't worry about what you will eat, what you will drink, and what you will wear. And again, I don't think those are accidental because in the story, in Israel's story, in their history, these were the things that were rooted in the very foundation of their story. When you think about eating, right? There was always this idea of provision and do we have enough? And it always came from their ancestors who wandered a desert and prayed that God would send manna from the sky so that they may eat. So you're hearing Jesus say, like, don't worry about what you'll eat. Well, that would have triggered all sorts of stuff for them. Like, yeah, yeah, we remember that story because that's what our ancestors did. If, if kind of metaphorically our life is like wandering the desert like them, that was one of the things that was of great concern to them is what are we going to eat? 
And God provided for them when they needed it. And they were not to what? Store up more than they ought to. So again, this idea of storing up and eating and will God provide? It was all in that. God, Jesus says, don't worry about what you eat. And people would have been like, oh yeah, yeah, I get that. I understand that. That's, that's what our ancestors, that's, what our, that's been our story. Worrying about what we will eat as we wander the desert. And he says, don't worry what you drink. And they go, yeah, that too. Because there's this big rock that Moses had to hit. Because we didn't have any water back then. And we grumbled against him. We grumbled, they grumbled against you, God, about what they would drink. Oh, yeah, I know that story. Water from the rock. Oh, and the clothing thing? Oh, yeah, that goes way back. That goes back to the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve, they sin. They don't believe in the provision of God. They have this whole garden, and yet the one thing they're not supposed to eat, they eat. So God sends them out into that wilderness. They're no longer allowed. The, the wilderness journey begins for them. And what's the first thing God does? He clothes them. Almost as a way of saying, and, and, and something has to die. And here's where the gospel, ooh, something has to die for them to be clothed. That's, yeah, yeah, we know that story. Eating and drinking and clothing, that's, that's been the story. And then wouldn't you know, Jesus then continues to use these, these ideas. Because what he does now is then he begins to flip it. And he begins to say, yeah, yeah, I'm talking about, I'm talking about food. Yeah, yeah, I'm talking about water. Yeah, I'm talking about clothes. But I'm talking about something deeper than that, too. When I say I'll give you everything you need, I'm talking about something deeper than just things you put in your stomachs and the water in your mouths and the clothes on your backs. I'm talking about something different. John chapter 6. Jesus says it. Hey, God will give you everything you need, but what is of first importance? Don't work for the food that spoils, but for food that endures till eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. And Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. You see, there's provision. There's the things we will eat. But Jesus promises a food, a bread, a hunger that he will satisfy with himself. And that he promises to everyone. You will get that. Don't worry about that. Jesus goes to a festival a little longer, later in John. It's a big, big festival. One of it is all the water. We've preached on this before. All this water poured on, celebrating it. And on the last and greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who believe in him were later to receive. We've been promised a Holy Spirit that we have that gives us rivers of life. We have a Savior, the bread of life. We have a Spirit flowing 
like rivers of living water to us. And then Paul, he, he takes this idea as well. He's going to jump on that clothing metaphor. And I'll say this in Galatians 3. So in Christ, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Eating and drinking and wearing. And Jesus says, your heavenly Father knows you need them, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That's the living word, the bread of life, the waters, rivers of flowing living water, the clothing of righteousness, the clothing of Christ around you. That is what will endure till eternity. And all that other stuff, yeah, what you need for the journey I'm calling you on, I'll, I'll give you that too. But that's a representation of the eating and drinking and wearing that you need fundamentally. Don't you worry about that. You're going to get that no matter what. See, by your grace, Lord, you physically sustain us. By your grace, you give us good gifts that aren't necessary. But in the end, your kingdom and your righteousness, your grace is enough. Sickness or in health, in poverty or in riches, it's your righteousness and your kingdom and your grace. That is enough. If everything else falls around me, your promise will still ring true because we have you, because we can't outgive God. I'd like to call the band up as we reflect on this for a second. Uh, this became real to me. Uh, I said before, I said at the beginning, like, this is the longest I've been in one place. Well, I remember, because it's not been that long, because I moved around a lot as a kid. I remember when we bought our home here in, uh, in this area, here in Williamsville, we bought our home to be here. It was the summer, five and a half, six years ago. Uh, we, we knew we were here. We knew we were called to, to be a part of this Randall community. So we began searching for homes we said, God, you're called us here, so we need a place to live. We need a bread and, and water and clothing and housing. Like, there's these provisional things that we need if, if you're calling us to be here. But in the middle of the mortgage process, we ran into complications because I was a church planter before I came here, and so I was primarily support, uh, uh, raised my own support in order to provide for our family, which the underwriters had no idea how to figure that out. They were just like, and so they just ran us through hoop after hoop, and then the buyer, he got anxious, and he was like, you better hurry this up, or I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna pull the offer, and it was just, it was really stressful. It was a very stressful time where we didn't know if we were doing it, and there were times when I seriously questioned if we would get approved at all in order to live here. And I remember early on in that process, uh, my prayer went something like this. Uh, God, please give us the house. That was the prayer. Oh Lord, we want the house. Give us the house. Gimme, gimme, gimme. I want the house. Right? That was, and honestly, I mean, if you just boiled it all down to that, right? It was more, it sounded more spiritual, but like when he really came down to it, like that was the, that was the prayer. And about 
halfway through, when I really, really did think that this was, this was not going to work, and I really questioned it, and we were still trying to live in Rochester, I was commuting here, and it was just a mess. I remember God softened my heart. Not because of me, it was, it was, it was truly the Lord coming in, and my prayers began to change. And they shifted from, God, please give me the house, to something more like this. God, we don't need this house. And he didn't promise it to us. And if this whole thing falls through, we're going to be okay. Because you, we don't need that shelter, God. Because you are our shelter from the storm. And you're the bread of life. And you're the water of flowing through. And you're the one that clothes us in your righteousness. But God, we need a house. We need something. You've called us to this, so we believe that you will provide what we need to be here. And it might not be that house. And if it ends up being a shed out in the back, that will be enough. Because you are our shelter from the storm. You will give us everything we need because your righteousness and your kingdom and your grace is enough. Lord, give me a good eye. Lord, give us all good eyes to see your beauty your grace, your love, your generosity, which you showed ultimately on a cross, giving your life, the very ultimate act of generosity, giving your entire life so that we might go free. And then rose from the dead to enable us to emulate that resurrected life. As we see your generosity in the gospel, we then spread that generosity to everyone as you call us to. Believing, having a good eye, seeing that you are enough and that you have given us so graciously that we cannot help but then give as a response. Not because we ought to, but out of a gospel-rooted response to what you have given to us, which is everything. We have our bread, and we have our water, and we have our clothes, and we have our shelter from the storm. So Lord, we just ask that whatever it is that we need to survive to do that which you have called us to do, you will give, and that will be enough. And then we will live lives of gospel truth that is then generous to the world. We love you, God.